Our scripture passage for this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9 as we read verses 35 through 38. Hear now the word of God. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you speak to us plainly by your word? We are people in need of hearing from you. And when we hear from you, we do so not by our own strength, but we do it with the help of your spirit. And so we ask you, please send him this morning. Make us hear this morning. Unstop our deaf ears. Soften our hard hearts. Help for us to hear this message as something we need to hear and not simply our neighbor needs to hear. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Sometime back, we finished looking at the Sermon on the Mount in uh, chapter 7 of Matthew. And back when we were looking at Matthew chapter 7, I told you that we were moving from studying the most famous sermon ever preached to studying the most famous life ever lived. And then I I told you we were going to see a series of 11 miracles And now, actually, that has happened. That's taken place. Uh, Jesus' authority to heal has been evident. We have seen Jesus heal the the leper, the paralyzed servant, Peter's mother-in-law. We saw Jesus calm the storm. He healed the two men with the demon. He healed the paralytic. He raised the little girl. Uh, He healed the woman's bleeding, the two blind men, and he healed the mute man. So depending on how you count those, that should be 11 miracle accounts that Matthew has given us here, all of them for the purpose of convincing us that Jesus is the Messiah and that we should trust him with all our hearts. Um, That has been the point of all of these miracles. And so now having shown the disciples who he is, we begin a new part in the narrative as Jesus sends his apostles out. Uh, sometimes this portion of the narrative is called Jesus' mission discourse. Um, but please remember how all of these are connected. Now that the apostles have heard Jesus' authority, now they've seen Jesus' authority, they move to spreading the word of Jesus' authority. So they have been educated, they have seen for themselves, they have heard for themselves, and now what are they supposed to do? They are supposed to go out and take that very thing that they have internalized and learned and developed a love for, and they're supposed to go out with it. And Jesus has words for them as they go to do this. Um, You know, think of the contrary example. Think of if Jesus had just sent them out before they knew him, before they had spent time with him, before they had seen his miracles. 
um, that would, in some ways, it would be ridiculous, right? There's no content to what they're going to be saying. Um, and this is true of us too, right? When, when I was a new Christian, I, I was very excited. I wanted to tell others uh, about Jesus, but honestly, I knew very little. Um, I had plans to lead Bible studies because this thing had meant so much to me. But when I look back, those Bible studies I had planned had no content because I didn't know what I was going to talk about. I just knew that I loved God. And, and actually, that, that means a great deal. That means a great deal. Having a lot of zeal, people see that. They see that love. There's something contagious about it. And, and yet, at the very same time, uh, I wanted to tell people things I didn't understand yet. I wanted to talk about something that I didn't have the content for. If anyone had ever asked me a follow-up question, every answer would have been, I don't know. Now, it's still, I don't know, like 50% of the time you've been here for Sunday school. You know that. Um, but there's this humbling reminder that, that we can't teach or spread the message about a Savior that we don't know yet. And the disciples are going to be commissioned by Jesus to go out into the harvest next week. So when we look at that passage, we're going to see him actually doing the commissioning but this week, Jesus sets the stage for the sending. And so as he, as he begins the discourse on mission, he, he starts by highlighting the urgency of the work that's ahead. That's what this passage is. This passage is about the need for the work, the need for what he's about to do. When he sends them, he wants them to know he's not sending them out to do busy work. Um, you know, if you were ever in school, you probably got busy work. Now, I'm sure not at, at St. Stephen's, but... If you ever went to school anywhere else, um, even in seminary, I got busy work where I was like, the teacher needs me to give him something to grade. I can tell. Jesus is not giving busy work. That's what he's saying here. He's like, just so you know, the thing I'm sending you guys out to do is not busy work. It's the opposite. It is something that is urgent. It's something that's important. This is really needed. Um, he wants us to know that it's urgent because the gospel is not meant to remain in a static holding pattern around the church, right? The good news is not something for us to keep to ourselves. It, the gospel is not a, a, a mascot. The gospel is not a, a garment of clothing that identifies us. Oh, look, he's wearing the right uniform. He said the word gospel, um, the gospel is the message of the saving power of Jesus to rescue sinners. It's not a shibboleth, right? It's not a shibboleth, the thing that we just say and people go, oh, I know he's in my camp. He said the word gospel. This guy preaches the gospel. He said the word gospel, right? That's not what the gospel is. That's not what it's supposed to be. Um, the gospel is the message of salvation, and, and Jesus is beautifully showing that to us this morning with his sincere, big-hearted response to the crowds. He is surrounded by all of these people, all of these sinners who are in need of a Savior. And he doesn't want us to, to see his reaction to the crowds today and then come away with this clinical opinion, right? He doesn't want us to come away cold or hardened. He wants us to feel it in our bones the way that he does. Right, that these people need to know the rescue of Jesus. He wants more than just for us to be observers. He wants us to feel it in our hearts, just like he does. And so I want you to notice three things about what happens here today. First, notice what Jesus saw. Second, notice what Jesus did. 
And then third, this morning, I want us to learn the lesson, what Jesus expects. What Jesus expects. So the, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. What would Jesus have us do today? What would, what would, he, what would he have us change today? Uh, how would he see our attitudes change today? Even just looking at how Jesus teaches and how Jesus feels about these people should land on us. It should have an impact on us. So first we come to what Jesus saw. The passage begins in verse 35. It says this, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So Jesus is now preparing the, uh, to head up a missionary work. Uh, it's a missionary work that's intended to go to the wider region of Galilee. And as he goes, he's, he's looking, he's watching, he is, he is observing, and, and he's looking at these people and what their lives are like. And the first observation, he, or first thing that the text says in verse 36 is it says he saw the crowds. Jesus saw the crowds. He, he saw them. He didn't just... He didn't just observe them, he saw them, right? He saw them because he, because he cared about them. He didn't notice that they were there, he saw them. He saw them because these were people who mattered to him. I think generally speaking, I say generally because some of you I know have really, really big hearts toward people. And then there's others of us who struggle with being Grinch-like, um, and I think generally, though, we struggle with caring about people. We struggle with caring about crowds. We struggle with caring about large groups. Um, for some of us, we see a, a big group of people, and it kind of overwhelms us. Uh, we can't quite process all of that. Um, that doesn't excuse our instinct not to care, but it means that we have a challenge in our life. We have a challenge to love people, not just individuals, but, but people. Uh, and so we can be callous, we can be dismissive, we can sinfully decide some people just aren't worth our time. It's pretty easy to do. But Jesus, with his big heart, looks at each person in that crowd and he has a deep regard for them. Why? Each of them is a human being made in God's image. They're all marked by him. They all bear the imprint of, of him on them. He, they're valuable to him. They are people with an eternal soul. Um, again, you, sometimes it's easy for us to lose this. One of the passages, and I've probably quoted it before just because it, it means so much to me. Um, C.S. Lewis talks about the value of a human being in his book, The Weight of Glory. He says it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all love, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. 
you have never met a mere mortal. Of course, he doesn't believe in gods and goddesses. He's using exaggerated language to say that we often devalue and dismiss people. We miss their value. This may be a crowd, but it is a crowd made up of people, immortal people who will live forever in one destination or another. And Jesus has the perspective that often we are missing. We can forget. Jesus never forgets. Jesus sees the value. Something else Jesus sees besides the crowd, he sees their helpless condition. Um, Matthew tells us that he saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Um, The language here is the language of being troubled, of being weary, of being beaten down. They were like a bunch of rudderless ships with no direction. They don't know their purpose. They don't know why they were made. Israel, ever since the, the time of the prophets, had sat under these ambitious leaders these ambitious rulers, ambitious kings, uh, ambitious, even many ambitious judges. Um, and all of them, to one degree or another, promise some kind of liberation, some kind of leadership. Uh, they want to liberate Israel from, from the Roman oppressors. They want to liberate uh, Israel from the Babylonians. They want to liberate Israel from, you name it, every obstacle that was around them. And everybody's promising, I'm going to give you direction. I'm going to give you liberation. Put me in charge. I'll be your leader. But even when Israel got strong leadership, that was not what their souls needed, right? And oftentimes you see this, that the better off, materially speaking, Israel was, the more devastating was the fall because they would cling to their stuff and they would cling to their things and they would lose their hope in the Lord and they would worship other gods. And we could have the best leader ever as a nation. And apart from Christ, we would still be like sheep without a shepherd. We would still be harassed. We would still be helpless. Because worldly leadership is not what we need. It is easy for us to refuse to see, like Jesus does, right? It's easy for us to either ignore or dismiss the masses of people, even in this very city. Do you, do you yield to that temptation, Evergreen family? Do you ignore the crowds? Do you ignore the people of this city? Have you somehow decided the city's just too lost? It's too secular. It's too godless. It's too permissive. It's too liberal. It's too fill in the blank, right? Whatever your issue might be, we often decide to think of the people in the place where we live as our enemies instead of as sad, lost, unforgiven, unredeemed, immortal people who need compassion. We cope with the problems by writing them off. It is easy to do. In fact, it's probably the easiest way for us to cope, by just making enemies out of them. Are we willing to take the note from Jesus here? Are we willing to take the note from Jesus and see, will we ask God, Lord, open my eyes and soften my hearts? Will we be able to resist the pull of the age? Because the pull of the age, I don't know what you think of when you think of the spirit of the age. Um, The spirit of the age is the spirit that says, let's politicize everything. That's actually the spirit of the age right now. And when we do that, 
instead of looking out there and instead of seeing sheep without a shepherd, do you know what we see? We see political interest groups. We see categories of people who are either getting in the way of our plans in the culture wars, and we decide their value based on their utility to helping us to achieve whatever goals it is that we think that we need to have. I'm not telling you cultural issues don't matter. Do not hear indifference in what I say. I care about issues too. But when we make those issues the lens for how we see all of our interactions and all people, we will slip into categorizing everyone we meet as soon as we know what their views on this or that issue are. Are they useful to me or are they an obstacle to what I want? What if we've got another category that we need to start putting people in? Sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. Jesus sees it, right? He sees them that way, right? He, the, uh, the spirit of the age doesn't just tempt us to compromise. And, and if you think of the spirit of the age, maybe you think of compromise. Maybe you think of becoming morally indifferent libertines and sinners. And you think that's what the spirit of the age is. But there's an opposite temptation. It's the temptation to be sectarians who won't associate with anybody who isn't like me. And it's the temptation to segment and sort politically and socially and think of everybody in those categories. The temptation to depersonalize people, to make them into positions and ideas instead of seeing them as faces and people and souls and individuals. Is it possible we have a heart toward this city like Jonah had toward Nineveh? You remember, Jonah wanted that city to burn. Jonah was such a righteous man, and they were so wicked, and God was so merciful. And then, and then God said to Jonah, should I not pity Nineveh? I love, it's like, he's asking Jonah, you want me to be different than I am, right? He says, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left? Does God need to ask you that question, right? Should I not pity Portland? It is a city with a million people who do not know their left hand from their right hand. God, God pities this city. Are you more holy? Are you more righteous than God? Do you deserve to be a stricter, harsher, less pitiable judge than God himself? Ask God whether he would work in you to rise above and beyond the spirit of the age. Beyond the division of the moment. Right, the error can swing in more than just one direction. If you start to forget that the world is a field filled with sheep without a shepherd, then you actually may be more compromised by the spirit of this age than you ever thought. One more thing Jesus saw. Even as he looked at this crowd, Jesus saw the potential for the harvest. <clears throat> See, what did he say? He looked out and he said, the harvest is plentiful. That's also something he saw. Right? He sees the people, he sees the problem, and he sees the potential. Will you see it as well? Do you look around the world as you drive from your church to your home, as you drive from home to work, as you drive from work to school, as you're driving around, because that's all we do anymore is drive around. And as you're driving around, do you ever think to yourself, the harvest is plentiful? Or do you look around and say, there it is. It's all the darkness. It's all the misery. 
There's no hope here. Jesus looks around. He sees all the misery, and all he sees is a harvest there. If you don't see what Jesus saw, if you don't love these people, if you don't pity the sheep without a shepherd, if you don't pity that great city, if you don't see that the harvest is plentiful, then you will never be moved to obey the command of Jesus to go into the world. Second this morning, we see what Jesus did. We saw what Jesus saw, and now we're going to see what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? Strictly speaking, in just these four verses, what he does is relatively simple. He sees the crowds, he has compassion on the crowds, and he teaches the disciples to be motivated to go. In other words, his convictions about the dreadfulness of sin and, and about the lost condition of humanity and his sense that something needed to be done drove him to more than just sentimentality. Jesus didn't just imagine how great it would be if missionaries were sent. He didn't just sit there and go, man, I just wish, really wish there were more missionaries. I wish there were more people to go out into this locality, right? But Jesus didn't just talk about how great it would be if someone went to them. Jesus acted on that impulse, right? And, and you're going to see this in the coming chapters. He's going to continue to act. Jesus goes out. He loves people. He spends time with people. Um, he acted. He, he lived in the world. He moved through the world. He, he watched people. He was involved. He, he listened to people. He was close to people. He was part of the world. But entering into the world and being part of it involves risk. And this is the thing that I've, I've spoken about it before, this, this human idol of safety, this human idol of security. It is something that holds us back. Because if we prize security and if we, so if we prize safety above everything else, we are going to greatly hesitate at the thought of being out in this world. Because in entering the world, Jesus was damaged and hurt, right? He was hurt by the world. He was crushed by the world. He was bruised by the world. He did not protect himself. He entered into all of this and, and, and it hurt him and, and it broke his heart and it made him weep. Are you in the world? Are you walking through this life like Jesus did? Are you, are you part of this world? Or have you decided it's time to withdraw? Uh, I don't know why. why I, th I have some ideas. Um, I always feel like I have to address this because I feel like I'm preaching in a different world than I was preaching in three years ago. I feel like even though we're tired of hearing about it. I feel like COVID-19 did something to people. People are different. Um, it seems like, you know what it did? It didn't introduce a new impulse, but it did accelerate something that was already going on in all our hearts. Because what happened was, when this sickness took place, and we were told, hey, we're all supposed to be safe, and it, what happened is it drew people into themselves, and it drew people into their worlds more, right? You sort of close the, you close the wagons around and you decide we're going we're gonna to protect ourselves. And it gave people social permission to be self-protective. And, and for many of us, we were already looking for the excuse. <laughs> we were all looking for, already looking for the reason to sort of indulge our self-centeredness and, and to feed it. And, and, and is it possible even now that 
that we are on the other side of the pandemic. It's, it's now a part of our regular life. Are you now more self-protective and paranoid and self-centered than you were before the pandemic? Just how far did the Overton window of self-centeredness move in your life? That level of self-centeredness that was already there, but you knew it was there and you were trying to resist it. How, how far has it moved now for you? Are you more self-centered than you were before? Do you think about yourself more than you did before? Are you willing to put yourself on the line less than you used to? I can't answer that for each of you. you you're going to have to examine your own hearts and ask the Lord to, to, to show you things. But living in the world involves pain and risk. And Jesus showed us that. That's what he's modeling for us. What did Jesus do? He considered the cost. He counted the cost. He said it's worth it. And he wants us to do the same. He doesn't want us to be removed, right? Let's pay the price involved in being people who live in this world, in this city, in this church. Like, let the risk, let's risk the hurt that can happen. Because Jesus has shown us that it's worth it. That's what he's going to show in just a moment. He's going to send them out. And when, you, when he sends them out... You know, if you've had children that, that have gotten old enough to leave the house, you know how hard it is. Uh, one of my children who will remain nameless started driving this year. That is every day. I know this child may be a great driver, but I also know there are maniacs out there on the road and their phones are very interesting while they're driving. And I frequently think to myself, this belongs to God now. This, this child belongs to God now because this world is filled with risk and every single intersection is a risk. And you don't feel it until they're driving themselves. It was always dangerous when you were driving too, but you thought you could control it. You couldn't control it even then. <coughs> Going out into the world is filled with risk. Let's risk the hurt that can happen because Jesus has shown us that it's worth it. It's worth it. In our next point, we're going to see this. Jesus is very concerned for his people that they won't love people or have the same compassion he does. He's concerned that, about, that that's the case. Now, we cannot be Jesus. We are not called to be Jesus in any literal sense. He's the one and only Savior. He's the Redeemer. He's the ultimate missionary. He's everything that people need. And yet he calls us out, and he calls us to more than simply look at him. He calls us to live among them and point them to him. That's going to involve risk. Right? We are not the redeemer, uh, and yet Jesus wants us to do what he did in many respects. He calls us to not just talk about his compassion, not just talk about missions, not just talk about the ideas of all of this. He expects us to act on these things that we say we believe. Will you do more than just talk about loving people? Will you go among them and will you love them? Will you have relationships? Will you get to know them? Will you get to speak when you have opportunity? What did Jesus do? He went into the field and he opened himself to suffering and he opened himself to hurt. What did Jesus do? Third, we also see what Jesus expects. It's really not hard to see what Jesus expects because after he sees the people and after he tells the apostles the harvest is plentiful, he makes an application of his observation. Right? Jesus doesn't generally preach sermons that don't have applications. <laughs> he 
He's very big on application. And he's always got something that he wants them to know about the thing that he just said. And what is he, what's his application? His application is, these people need a shepherd. These people need a protector. These people need harvesters to go out among them, right? It's, that's his observation. Therefore, what? What does Jesus expect? What's the lesson? He says, the workers are few. Therefore, pray. That's his application. <laughs> that's, that's the first thing he starts with. He starts with prayer. Jesus begins with prayer. I think we don't think of prayer as doing. I think that, that's a huge mistake that we make in our minds and in our hearts that when we think of prayer, we don't think of it as, as doing anything, which is, which is very foolish. I mean, we instinctively do it, but it is foolish. It's honestly, it's honestly unbelief to think that prayer is doing nothing. I think it's great that Jesus starts with praying here, precisely because it's so important. He's letting us see that it's important. Um, he doesn't just say pray. He actually says pray earnestly. Earnest prayer is not something we think about very much. It's not something we talk about very much. Um, I'm not even sure any of us know what would be the difference between, between praying and praying earnestly. The first time you see earnest prayer in Scripture is in the book of Jonah. It's actually right before God teaches Jonah his lesson about not loving the city. In Jonah 3.8, Jonah's gone to the city. He's told these people what God's going to do. And in Jonah 3.8, it says that Nineveh called out mightily to God. And the word for, for mightily in the, in the Greek version of the Old Testament is the word earnestly, the same word that he uses here. Jesus is telling us to pray like the Ninevites. <laughs> he's telling you, pray like Ninevites. <laughs> he's, he's saying, you know, the Ninevites didn't just call out. They called out earnestly. They called out mightily. They called out greatly. Why? Because this, the problem was so severe. In Acts chapter 12, verse 5, Luke tells us Peter was kept in prison. But what happened? Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Right? And in both of these scriptural instances, these people are in truly dire straits. They are completely helpless on their own. They are powerless. They have nothing they can do. And without any power and inability, all they can do is pray. Jesus says, pray earnestly. Earnest prayer is, it's serious, it's eager, it's intense prayer. It, you know, if you think about the people in your life who pray and maybe who are great at praying, you think to yourself, man, I wish I could be a holy person like that. I really wish that I could be a sanctified person who could earnestly pray. But think about this. You don't have to be especially sanctified to pray. If the Ninevites can make earnest prayer, surely we can, right? We don't wait to get to level 10 of our sanctification before we pray earnestly. Because see, it turns out the real secret to earnest prayer is not a glowing halo or a righteous disposition. The real secret is weakness. The real secret is need. The real secret is powerlessness. That's, that, that's what it takes to make earnest prayer. Um, Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China for 51 years. And I love this quote from Hudson Taylor. He said, God uses men who are weak and feeble enough to lean on him. God uses men who are weak and feeble enough to lean on him. Are you that weak? Are you that feeble? 
then you are a great person to pray earnestly. Are you unable to accomplish God's mission on your own? Then you are a prime candidate for earnest prayer. Pray earnestly for what? He says pray. He's putting content to the earnest prayer, right? It's not just pray generally in a way that sounds serious. He's putting content to it now. He's giving us in the application what we actually should pray for. He says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. That is the content of the prayer that he says helpless people should be, should be making to him. Right? This is, this is God's harvest. We just need people to labor. It's interesting, this interplay here between our helplessness to do what must be done and the responsibility that we have to actually go, right? We're called to go, but even in the going, we're leaning on him. Uh, even in the going, we're going with his power. Even in the going, we're going with his energy. Jesus has been healing, feeding his people with the word. And now what does he do? He expects them to go from being recipients of his ministry to being agents of his ministry. And, and that's the other implicit therefore. And this is the therefore that we'll, we'll see more next week. Therefore, you go out into the harvest. Right? Don't just pray for God to send someone else. I think that might be how we're tempted to pray, right? Lord, send someone. Send somebody. And then, and then we just kind of are like, that's not somebody that's not me, you know? When we think about that, I think we might immediately think, when we pray about God sending people into the harvest, I think we think about foreign missions, I think we think about foreign missions. Now, we, we, have to, we have to admit obeying Jesus, for some of you, I hope might actually mean becoming a foreign missionary. I, I hope there's somebody in this room that right now God is at work in your heart and he is giving you a heart for a people group who have never heard from Jesus before. Um, the Apostle Paul said it was his ambition to preach Jesus where he had not previously been named. Um, and I do pray that would be the case for some of those here in this room, that God would be raising up foreign missionaries in our midst to go out to the nations. But I think oftentimes we protect ourselves from the command of God by mentally overstating what God is calling us to do, right? Because whatever else it means, what Jesus does here certainly means being a domestic missionary, right? Because when he sends them out, they're not going a thousand miles from where he is, right? They're going to the surrounding area, right? They're doing what you would think of as missionary work, but it's right around where they already are, right? And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a domestic missionary. You're a domestic missionary to the place where you live. Because if you live here, then you've been called here. There's no question you've been called here because he's put you here, right? And so if you live here, then you've been called here. Think of what missionaries do. Um, in fact, we've heard from, from the missionaries we support. We've heard what their work in the field is like. Some of them show up at the mission field. And what do they do for the first several years? They just learn the language. They just develop relationships with people, people they can barely talk to. They, they start to learn to engage in everyday language with the locals. And what are they doing? They're spending time getting educated, getting up to speed so they can minister in the place where they are. They're spending a lot of time earning trust, uh, hearing from people, hearing what the problems people have are. And, and guess what? 
you are already in a place where you know the language. You are already in a place where you have relationships. You find yourself immersed in everyday life with other people. Most of you do anyway. You find yourself in a place where you already know the culture. You already find yourself in a place where you aren't an outsider. God has been preparing you all your life to be a missionary in the Portland, Beaverton, Aloha, Hillsboro, Forest Grove, Oregon City, Tigard, fill-in-the-blank region. You are ready. Um, you may not be a preacher, but I'm sure of this. If you're, a, if you're a communing member, then you know the gospel. If you're a communing member, then you know that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. You know who the Savior is, and you know where people can hear about him. You have all the essentials. You have your satchel. You have your walking stick. You are actually ready to go out and meet people who need the gospel. Um, what is our excuse for not laboring right now in the harvest where we find ourselves? Uh, there was a leader of the Moravian church. His name was Count Zinzendorf, who by far had the best name of the Reformation. And uh, I had to look a thousand times to make sure Zinzendorf is, was a real man, and he was. And he said this. He said, the world is the field, and the field is the world. And henceforth, that country shall be my home where I can be most used in winning souls for Christ. Now, some of you I know are doing this, right? I, I, and you have done it, right? You, you tell me about conversations that you have with your coworkers. You ask for advice about talking to somebody from a different religious background. You've told me about the challenges that you have talking about Jesus with coworkers or fellow students or neighbors. Um, some of you have even shared the gospel. Some of you have invited your coworkers to church. We've even baptized one of them, right? Praise God. <laughs> and we should not, though, coast on the labors of others. We shouldn't think to ourselves, well, someone is doing it. I'm glad someone is doing it, right? And then we sort of breathe a sigh of relief and we set the responsibility aside for ourselves. Is it possible that you think you can't do it because you don't see very many people? It's possible... Maybe we have closed off lives. I, I, don't, I don't know who you see each day. I don't know the interactions you have. But is it possible, too, that our worlds are a little too closed off? Maybe we need some hobbies. Maybe we need to go to the community center and exercise, even though we don't like exercising. Um, <laughs> I don't really know particularly what it looks like in your context. But if you're physically able to go out there, then it's important for you to ask the question, what can I do as a missionary in the place where I live. Now, there is a difference between a missionary and missionary work. I'm trying to make a distinction here between what an average Christian should be expected to do and what a professional called missionary on the foreign mission field does. And there's a great deal of hair splitting that we could do when it comes to that. But even if you're not physically able, let me go back to something Jesus said at the very beginning. Pray for the Lord to send out laborers. That's, that's his application here. He says, pray. Some of the most incredible laborers in Jesus' harvest are people who are unable to move very much. But they can pray. They can move mountains by calling out to him. I can't tell you how blessed I've been in my ministry and how blessed I have been just to witness the prayers of people who can't be even in church each week due to physical challenges. And, 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 I, would, and I have, specifically, I have one lady in mind 
that I remember visiting once, and she told me, she said, Pastor, uh, I can't get around much, and I don't see very many people, uh, but at least I can pray. And I'm very sad that she couched that like an apology. I'm so sorry that all I can do is pray. I wish there was something I could really do. And it was very important to me that this woman and anybody else who's in her shoes hear this. The ministry of prayer is a real ministry. It is a real and tangible way of loving God's people and loving God's kingdom. Please never let anyone tell you that prayer is just words. Please never let anyone tell you that prayer is something that you should apologize for because it's, quote, unquote, all you can do. I really believe that the power of the church has rested in God graciously answering prayers for the church. God has been kind to his church because people have been praying for his church. If you've been blessed here, it's because there are people behind the scenes, not up front here, who are praying for it. There are people praying for the gospel ministry here. And if you've been blessed, then God's been answering prayers. Please know that is, that is a significant way for you to do the thing that Jesus is talking about here. Even if you can't go out in the world, and even if you don't see a lot of people every day, you can always be in prayer. You can always pray. Another way we can obey this command is not just to support the church with prayer, but with, but with money. So even if you give to Evergreen, and we do support missionaries directly as a congregation, and you, you hear about them every month when our missions committee comes forward to talk about the different missionaries we support. But you can also individually support missionaries as well, above and beyond your ordinary giving. Right? And so if there is someone that you know who our church doesn't support, but you believe in their work, you can support them and you can give. Um, do not let the missions budget of this church function as the bottleneck of your giving when it comes to the missions. Um, all Christians should be playing a role in the work of taking the gospel to the nations. Um, John Piper says it like this, we can either go, send, or disobey. Go, send, or disobey. Those are our options. Which are you doing? Jesus tells us, Therefore, pray. He tells us to pray because, why? What's the therefore? God has chosen to make prayer a means of advancing his kingdom. He could do it all on his own by divine fiat, without human beings praying, without anybody going. He, he could just speak and the mission would, would be accomplished. That is in his power to do because he is God Almighty. And he made the heavens and he made the earth and he made the water and he made the sea and all the creatures in them. And of course, he could accomplish his mission just by speaking. But his mission isn't to do that. His, he is intentionally including us. And he has freely chosen to include us. He has chosen to use us. He has chosen to use human messengers to do divine work. He's chosen to listen to human prayers for the advance of the gospel. He lets us be a part of this. And so let's do this today. Go, send, or disobey. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we not be those who make excuses for ourselves, who hide behind the obedience and work of others, who ride the coattails of others. 
Instead, would you give our church obedience, not just our church, oh God, but your church? Would you start, though, with each of us individually? Would you make each of us faithful to your word? Would you make us prayerful? Would you make us hear your word, taught in your word, give us a hunger and thirst for the spread of your word? Make us hunger and thirst to see the nations of this world turn to you, men and women, boys and girls from all tribes and tongues and nations, but help us to start here where we are now. Give us a love for the lost. Give us the heart of compassion that we saw your son have toward the crowds. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Even your approaching blindness, even your physical disability, even, even your toothache, whatever it may be, he is, he is working for your good. If you are a believer, he is working for your good. He is shaping you. And being shaped is not easy, right? An artist doesn't shape a piece of granite into its final form simply by rubbing it a little. Right? It happens by hard, jarring strikes one after another. And each strike is unpleasant. And at the moment, it seems hard. He's shaping you for your good. And your good, as he defines it, is not comfort. I know you wish it was. Sometimes, most of the time, I wish it was. Your good, as he defines it, is not wealth. It is not ease. It isn't even an absence of pain, though you may wish that it was. Your father loves you too much for that. Instead, your good, as he defines it, is holiness and likeness to Christ. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 says this. Suffering Christian, I hope you can hear this right now. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Has he been striking you, chiseling you this past year? Is he shaping you right now? You can feel the hammer. He's preparing you. He's preparing you for the eternal weight of glory. He is working all things for your true good. He is. You can trust him to do it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you prepare us to suffer? Whether we are suffering right now as I speak, or whether suffering is on the horizon. Whatever our situation, please do not leave us as we are. Remind us that we can trust you to prepare for us an eternal weight of glory, not worthy of comparison with the momentary afflictions that we are experiencing. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.